0: Need to create a complex enterprise Angular application? Angular Bootcamp is an intensive three-day workshop class to learn the basics of Angular through sophisticated techniques for real-world applications. We target Angular 6 and the recent versions with much of the curriculum is suitable back to Angular 2. Or go beyond the three-day class with a consultation or project launch with Oasis Digital, the team behind Angular Bootcamp. We can assist your team or launch your project with advanced Angular topics including scalability, data flow, state management, full stack product design, and more. Contact us for a private class at your location or buy a ticket for public classes in various cities around the U.S. and occasionally in Europe. Online life instructor training is also available at angularbootcamp.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Angular. This week on our panel, we have Alyssa Nichol.
1: Hello, hello. Glad to be here, everyone.
0: John Papa. Hello. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. If you listened to last week, you heard all about the new show coming out about freedom, developer freedom. So go check it out, thedevrev.com. And uh, this week we have a special guest, and that is Mike Jambalvo. Did I say that right? It's uh, Jim Balvo. Jim Balvo. Awesome. Do you want to give us a brief intro?
2: Tell us why you're famous. Sure. Yeah. So I'm uh, one of the contributing authors for Testing Angular Applications, um, a new book out uh, from Manning about testing best practices uh, for Angular. It has uh, four contributors: Craig Nishina and uh, myself are both on the Protractor team, so we contributed chapters on Protractor and end-to-end testing specifically. And the other authors in the book are uh, Jesse Palmer and Karina Cohn. Nice. So I've been writing a book, but I've
0: been doing it by myself. What's it like writing a book with contributors? Collaborating? Yeah, I was going
1: to ask. Paul. Was that hard being like one of four people?
2: It it was hard, and we're all in uh, separate separate areas, mm-hmm. right? So we couldn't actually uh, meet in person. So the, the story about that, what happened is back in the Angular 2.0 days, Jesse was writing a book about testing Angular applications that was focused specifically on Angular 2. And he was also making a kind of an introduction to Angular 2 of like, hey, here's what components are and this new thing, right? And here's TypeScript. And it was going Sorry, kind of slow. Was that? What was that first thing you said? Component? Yeah, come com- components. <laughs> They're components. Yeah. yeah.
3: We'll get to that later, maybe.
2: So circle back around so he was working with manning on writing this book and at the time craig and i were working on protractor craig is awesome about going into the community and like making connections with people so he met jesse made friends and jesse was like hey you know i'm doing this book i could really use some help just finishing it getting over the line and so craig asked me to jump in and jesse found karina and we all like got together and and got this thing finished and it wasn't That difficult because we had areas we specialized in so we could break it down. So Craig and I took the end-to-end testing chapters. Jesse continued with sort of the front half of the book. Karina jumped in on middle chapters about specifically testing services and some testing of routers too.
1: Okay, so if you break it up by section of book, I guess that makes it easier. I was imagining like, writing a chapter together with someone or something and feeling like
2: that, that would be that would be, be hard. And and Craig and I did Craig and I did work together on some chapters and that's sort of easier because we worked together. So we could just like rotate. share a Google Doc. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was gonna say like yeah.
4: one of those games like you know, choose your own adventures, guys. We could just see them rotate around the room and just pick different words
2: like, <laughs> <laughs> is it was like finish the great. sentence improv game.
3: Yeah, so, oh. something more like you write the first of half of every sentence and somebody else writes the last half of every sentence. Like that would be the I way would I would
0: probably imagine merge conflicts on paragraphs and
2: going
1: yeah, oh. yeah, that's exactly what I was imagining. I was imagining it was like writing code, but like with text and you know, well,
2: so- you know, it kind of was in, in a bit. So this was also the experience of writing a book was kind of like that because you're in Word. So you've got these big Word documents that you go through, you write your chapters, and then you send them off to the publisher, and then someone edits them and like comes up with basically code comments that you have to then come in and edit. And it's all like lots of different. It was not a very fun process in terms of like dealing with merge conflicts and dealing with versions. How many
1: back and forths do you have? Like, I want to get to the content of it, but I also am super interested about this. Like on the editing, pass it back, editing again, pass it back. What would you say? Like 10, 5, 2? It <laughs> it
2: depends. I don't know exactly, but I'd say around 8 back and forth. And one of the problems with, with us is because we had four different authors, they have to do what's called a one voice pass, where they pick someone to go through and edit the book and put everything into, like, just their voice, just so it's not like you're, like, switching around styles as you Oh,
1: that makes sense. I was wondering, because a lot of times when I'm reading a co-authored book, I'm always impressed with how I can't necessarily tell that from one chapter to the next it was written by somebody else. So that's intentional,
2: I see. Yeah, there's a specific editing pass. Okay. Um, Yeah, so there's, like, there's grammar and style editing passes, and then there's a technical review phase. It's very waterfall. It's very, like we'll do this phase, I'll we'll do this phase, I'll we'll do this phase. And I was I was amazed at how kind of slow the process was. We were we had a big rush to get like our chapters done at the beginning of the year. And then it's just coming out now, like eight or nine months later.
1: I see. So it was, you feel like the editing process was the main holdup, not the writing?
0: Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So my former co-host on Ruby Rogues, I have no regrets. We were going to co-write a book, all six of us. And now I, I feel a lot better about not having <laughs> Oh what What's kind of the core, like if you can break down the book into like three or four core ideas, what do you hit people with as far as here, here's what you got to know? Like if we could just get an elevator pitch
2: on it.
1: And yeah, like, and what is the starting knowledge? Like, do you come in at with, we expect you to know testing already or?
2: Uh, no, the starting knowledge is we expect you to have maybe done the Angular intro. I'd say. And that's about it. The book has a a sample application, um, sort of a contacts app. And it sort of walks you through setting up that app, writing tests for it. Yeah. And and step-by-step starts with specific examples of testing components, testing services that work together, uh, dealing with asynchronicity, and then goes into end-to-end testing. So are there specific principles that you put out there as far
0: as when you write your tests, make sure you're thinking about these things or doing these things or taking this kind of an approach?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we talk about the, the testing pyramid in the book, like just in general, having more unit tests necessarily than end-to-end tests, starting with, I, I, think, I think part of what we highlight is the advantage that comes with Angular, compared to Angular JS, in that you can test the rendering of your component as well, right? So you can test out your template, you can test like, when I change this, does this show up here? So that shows up in the book a lot. We also talk a bit about testing asynchronous behavior using uh, the async zone or the fake async zone and sort of the differences between the two. And, and yeah, so sort of the importance of making your tests uh, deterministic. It's, it's very example driven, I'd say. Nice, one thing that I wanna kind of hit on here,
0: cause you mentioned the testing pyramid and I feel like I've been talking about testing all week. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, cause we, so uh, Elixir Mix, we talked about testing, Ruby Rogues, we talked about testing. Last week's React Roundup was also about testing. We had Kent C. Dodds on and he was talking about uh, testing in React. Um, some of you might know him cause he used to be an angular guy, but anyway, he, he was talking about it and he was talking more about, uh, shifting more of the weight toward end to end tests with Cypress and things like that, because it's faster and easier to do those tests than it used to be. And so since the barrier to entry is lower, you can see that your entire app works nicely and you don't have to worry so much about testing implementation details with your unit tests. Right. Right. And and I'm curious, you know, do you see this kind of shift when you talk to people about testing? Or are people still using the, the pyramid and getting the value out of it is what I'm really worried about?
2: Right, right. Absolutely. So I would say like, as a more pragmatic matter, like I personally am not like a huge fan of the pyramid. It's sort of a multi author book. And that's that's sort of in there. But I would say in general, like the important concerns of a test are not necessarily how small a bit of code it, it covers. The important concerns are, is it Does it run quickly? Is it reliable? If it fails, can you quickly identify the cause? And so so to give you some background, I work on Google Cloud Platform, which is when you go to GCP, the entire thing is one giant Angular app. And so a few years ago, when they were developing GCP and building it out, they started entirely from protractor tests. Uh, So we have this big suite of end-to-end tests that have to start up a backend server that have to like register production accounts go to the website, like navigate around and click on things. And a few years ago, we had a problem because we were out of VMs in a region because one of our end-to-end tests running with every release had reserved every possible oh, VM no. in Germany, right? So you can't just rely on end-to-end tests because you're gonna, you, they're gonna be expensive, right. especially using like production resources. So what our team has done is, is moved to, to shim back ends. Like we've, we've faked out that part of the stack. But they still have to make like an API call at some point, right? And GCP being like a very large, complex UI, it actually has to make a, a lot of different API calls. And so if we don't want to be testing in production, we have to be faking those out at some level, whether that's writing just a complete fake reimplementation of our backends or whether that's doing something in the browser. So what we've tried to do, especially with the move to Angular 2 within GCP, is to focus people on taking their, their protractor tests which start a a browser and connect to some kind of server of some kind and pull that slightly back into tests that run in Karma, which we call page-level integration tests. So these are, if you look at the testing pyramid, they're maybe in the middle, right? These are tests that, they're not unit tests because they're not testing like a single function or or component in isolation. They're testing an entire page at once, uh, but they're still mocking out a lot of the common framework, a lot of the the router is sort of mocked out, any sort of service that makes a back-end call, that ends up being mocked out. But we end up testing the entire page in concert. And because that's not actually starting a server, uh, it starts very quickly because it's not making back-end calls. It's very, uh, it's what we call hermetic and repeatable. And it's easier to debug. To, to go back to your question, I would say that that, yes, I think that's true, that the balance is between... Is your test entirely hermetic in that it can't fail from external causes? Or are you testing in production? Is your test fast or slow and that it's bringing in more or fewer components? And is your test testing your application end to end? And you want to be testing as far end to end as you can, I think, while still preserving hermeticity and, and making your test fast, making them reliable and, and not using production resources.
1: Can we define hermeticity? Does that mean like being a hermit?
2: it means hermetic so
1: oh, it's from hermetic not yeah. hermit okay got it. <laughs>
2: yeah yeah for hermetic right
1: i was like oh maybe yeah. it means like being solo like a hermit yeah, <laughs> right
0: it's more like it's sealed off from outside contamination right like you're in an airlock or in like a, <laughs> a in a bubble you know um,
1: okay okay
0: by the way after your explanation yeah what you did writing the book must have been a breeze compared to that <laughs> Wow. I mean, there's a lot there, but yeah, I mean, the value's there too, you know, the the payoff for having tests in that way and knowing, you know, having some confidence about your code. I mean, it makes a ton of sense to go through the effort given the number of people that use GCP.
2: Right. Yeah. And so so to go back to your original point, like I think tools like like Cypress are very helpful. Cypress is, it's a weird end of the testing pyramid, right? Because it is not running your app sort of completely... alone in isolation. It's sort of, it's living in the browser with your app, like in an yeah. iframe. So maybe like one level above that is web driver testing where you're actually automating a browser where you have all this other stuff you have to worry about. And so the that's question how, is- That's how Protractor works, right? That works. is how Protractor works, yeah. And I, I, I'd like to get into that a bit too because it's a long, long story. So where do you recommend people
0: start? Let's say that I have a large legacy app that doesn't have many or any tests on it. Do you recommend they start at the high level- you know, protractor or Cypress type test, or do you recommend that they kind of come down to unit tests or integrations between components or things like that?
2: I think starting in the middle, like finding the right balance that works for you is is what's most important. Like what situation can you create where it's as easy as possible to create new tests as you continue to develop features? Uh, There's a really great book, probably about two decades old at this point, uh, working effectively with legacy code Mm -hmm. uh, by Martin Fowler. And, and his, his point is that untested code is legacy code. That if you don't have tests around your code, you become afraid to change it. And if you can't change it confidently, then you can't refactor. And that's how you end up with, with a mess that no one wants to work on. And the way around that is to start with the outside in, make tests probably at the, at the integration level, but again, at whatever sort of balance between hermeticity and speed and reliability that you need to find. So probably at the Cypress or at the, page-level integration test level, nail down behavior, you know, have something that will fail if you break some feature you weren't aware of. So you have the confidence to come in and refactor. And then as you come in and refactor, sort of stake out ground with unit tests for things that are trickier, for things that you're more worried about. I'm not a believer in having like 100% unit test coverage. I think it's more important to, again, to have kind of broad integration test coverage for things that are likely to fail, right? And if there's a really particularly tricky bit of of code in a single function or in a single component, then by all means have a unit test for that. But to the extent that you're just wiring stuff up together, it's more valuable to have an integration test.
0: Yeah, we've talked to Michael Feathers about working effectively with legacy code on Ruby Rogue. So I'm gonna see if I can find a link for that and put it in the show notes.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I have a question. Yes. What's your opinion of some of the other tools that have come up in recent times, Cypress and Test Cafe
2: and some of these other tools like this? So I'm not familiar with Test Cafe. I am somewhat familiar with Cypress, although I haven't actually tried it out yet. I've just mostly been following other people's blog posts and and docs. There's kind of a long story in in, in how all of these things fit together. If we look at browser testing five or or seven years ago, we were using Selenium. And Selenium was a project to make it easy to automate web tests. And in the old days, Selenium actually did what Cypress does. Selenium would run in the browser alongside your app simulating click events, simulating different behavior. That was the way it worked for a few years. And then they developed this alternate way of doing things called Selenium RC, Selenium Remote Control, where it would actually send commands to the browser and run in a separate process. And that was popular at the time because you could write your tests in Java or in Python or whatever and control a browser separately. Keep in mind, this was like 10, 7 years ago. JavaScript wasn't as, as great as it is now back then. Selenium RC caught on... And so people created different sort of heroic implementations to make browsers remote controllable. And it depended on the browser. So in Safari, you'd have like a special extension. And in fact, for a lot of these, it was you have like a special extension or a special program that runs aside them. And as someone who did browser testing back then, like five plus years ago, it was a pain because for every browser, you had to come up with a way to remote control it, to plug it into your tests if you wanted the same test to run on every browser. This effort turned into WebDriver, Selenium WebDriver. And what Selenium WebDriver has been doing and that they just achieved in the past couple of years is pushing for this kind of automation to be a W3C browser standard. So they finally got that. It was, it was the result of a long struggle that now browser vendors have a standard that they have to make their browsers automatable via some sort of well-defined protocol. So if you write a test using the WebDriver protocol you can run it against Safari, you can run it against Edge, i.e. kind of uh, Edge supports the W3C protocol better, um, and of course Chrome and Firefox. It was a lot of effort to, to get to there, and right at the point when the W3C standard was a thing is when Cypress started to become popular because that was the point of like peak pain of having to deal with, oh, I'm on version 45 of Firefox, I need this version of the Gecko driver, or like people would have to like download these drivers separately and manage them. Keeping on top of Virgin skew was a pain. And it was much simpler just to have something like Cypress, which worked just like Selenium did back 10 years ago, where you have your test in the browser running alongside your app in an iframe. And there's a lot of advantages to that. You can more easily mock out XHR requests. It runs faster because you're not having multiple processes you have to juggle, like it's just in your browser. If you're a web developer, you can debug it more easily because the debugging experience in browsers is a lot better than it was 10 years ago. So I think it's a useful tool. And I think if it works for people, they should use it. But the disadvantage is you're not able to, your tests aren't quite as high fidelity as they would be using WebDriver. Um, You're not quite testing like the browser in isolation with your app as if a user were sitting there, which is what WebDriver tries to achieve. Cypress makes a trade-off and making a test that is slightly less like a user sitting at a computer using your, your app in a browser. But the, the trade off they get for that lack and loss in fidelity gives them better debuggability, gives them a faster startup time, faster test time. So that's kind of where that, that all sits. At the same time, there's a tool from Chrome called Puppeteer. So if we look at it, and this is going to be a great podcast because it's very visual, is you have WebDriver that is calling into something called Chrome Driver that is using the DevTools API to control Chrome. And what Puppeteer is, is an NPM that lets you just use the DevTools protocol at like a lower level than WebDriver. And what that means is the Chrome team can have an API that they have more control over and experiment with more and do more back and forth with the browser that is a bit easier to use than the the WebDriver protocol, which has to work for all browsers. Um, And they also do some other great things with Puppeteer. They bundle in a Chromium so you don't have to actually like download. You don't have to worry about which version of Chrome you have and which version of Chrome driver you have. Like, it just comes with a browser that it works with. So it just starts. So Puppeteer and Cypress are both like easier ways to do end-to-end testing.
0: So if uh, it comes with
2: Chromium, does it work in Electron as well then? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Okay. I, I seem to remember seeing something about having Puppeteer work with Electron. It does use the DevTools API. So I assume it like it at least works at some level. Well, maybe we'll
0: have a listener leave a comment.
2: I like that explanation. I appreciate you going through that.
4: Uh, I used Protractor for many years on Selenium and prior to Protractor, I used Selenium more directly, Mm. not web, but with other platforms too, because Selenium also talks uh, like historically with some Java apps that I've worked with or
2: some things.
4: But I'll tell you this, what's great about Protractor was that we could CI it, that's a verb now, if we could easily put it in the CI processes, what was not so great for me was the experience of writing an antithesis
2: protractor, to me, pales in comparison to like something like Cypress these days. Right, right. Like, because it is fundamentally more complex, right? You've still got two processes. Mm-hmm. And that was part of the reason we w- I wanted to write a protractor chapter for this book is because we'd had problems with explaining the complexity of protractor to people. And one of those big, Sticking points, and it definitely was for me when I joined the project is you know, you've got your test running in the browser, and you've got your, your test running in Node, and you've got your app running in the browser, and they're communicating. Sometimes you're running JavaScript that appears in your test, but is actually being like serialized and shipped to the browser and run there. So you've got these two different runtimes, and you might need to debug your test Node.js runtime separately from your app. And it's a lot of complexity. And that was one thing I learned like in writing this chapter is the the mental load we ask for people is pretty high if you have to actually write a whole book to explain how the whole thing works.
4: Yeah, Yeah. I mean, just getting people started, like the the way the selectors work is similar, but I feel it's a little easier in Cypress. What really helped me in Cypress was as I'm coding, like you said uh, earlier, you've got the visual browser up and running uh, over on one side, seeing the changes happen as it goes. right. it's super easy to be able to like, you know, actually interact with it and click on elements to go, wait, it's not selecting or typing in the right box. Let me go look and see what exactly it thinks it is. So it gives you like a selector inside the tool. And I personally found using that was helpful. Although one gotcha I ran into with Cypress was, they have an option to run it in Electron or to run it in Chromium. And okay. it's significantly more stable when running in Electron than running in Chromium correctly. Like I never have to restart it, whereas with Chrome it was like half the time, you know, four or five runs in, I'd have to refresh. So that's it's not perfect.
2: interesting. Yeah, I wonder why that would be.
4: Yeah, but again, it's not. I can't find a way to make this really CIable, and hmm. running it only in Chrome is not good enough for me. It's got to run in multiple browsers. So right, I don't think that's
2: there yet with uh, Cypress. Do you, do you ever run into issues using Cypress of click, maybe not behaving as you would expect normally? Like does, does the way that Cypress sends events to your app, does that mirror an actual user using the app? For
4: the times I've used it, and I've only used it for a couple months because I got turned on to it recently and I've written it, I probably used it in seven or eight apps. I haven't had any of those problems yet, no. Okay. But I'll look out for them. We so should also, have- at some point, I wish Ward Bell would come on as well because he's had, he's had a lot of experience with Test Cafe and he talks very highly of that. Uh makes me sure want to try it to see what they're doing. I don't Yeah, know. I haven't
2: heard of Test Cafe at all, actually. I'd be interested in in hearing more about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Turnward. Maybe Maybe we'll see if we can get an episode on that too.
1: So I wanted to ask about the book specifically. Mm-hmm. Is it available online and where can people get it?
2: Oh yeah, it's on, it's on Manning, manning.com available uh, wherever books are sold, as they say. <laughs> so on, on like Amazon, I think we have a few codes to give away. Okay. I don't know how that works. Yeah, um, they sent us some
0: codes and I'm working on a way to randomly give them away. Okay, great. So we'll probably uh, have a page up for that soon and we'll announce it on the show.
2: And, and yeah, so it's available on, on like Amazon or on manning.com, uh, testing Angular applications. And they also, for all their books, they have ebook versions.
1: Okay, um, very nice.
0: One thing that I'm, I'm curious about here with this too is that you know, we, we've listed like four or five tools that you know, fit into different niches, lots of overlap between them. Do you worry that your book will become out of date? Or, I mean, if I have a dead tree version, it's not gonna update itself. But sometimes you get updates on the ebooks.
2: That's, that's true. Although I don't know with Manning's process of like what their, what their process is for doing like a new version of the ebook. Okay. Um, but that's definitely something I've been worried about, like especially as we've, we've taken longer to edit it and as we've been working on stuff in Protractor. And we just, we tried to be aggressive about when we were writing at it, about being forward looking, um, looking at stuff that's coming down the line. To give you an example of that. So in Selenium, every time you make a, send a command to a browser, it's actually an async. Request, right? It's a, it's a network request that is going to an HTTP end that is telling the browser to do something. Because async programming wa- was and will and still is, but because async programming was so difficult many years ago before promises, before async await, before all of that, they came up with this managed promise idea. And the idea with managed promises was that you would write your test as if it's synchronous. And then at the end, so you say, like, click, get this element, click on this thing. It's all synchronous code. And then at the end, there's a magic, async code that runs the entire command. It's called the control flow. It runs all the async actions. And this was Protractor's, one of Protractor's biggest sort of value adds was that it made dealing with the control flow easier for users. But with the advent of async await, Selenium decided to deprecate that system two years ago and instead say, hey, we're not going to do this manage promise thing because it makes it really hard to debug because you set a breakpoint where you're sending a command. Command actually hasn't been set yet. So you can't actually debug your, uh, your test. We're going to instead explicitly make this an async API and explicitly say you have to await every promise that sends a command to the browser. So that came out while we were writing the book, right? That this API that used to be synchronous is now going to become asynchronous and it's going to have all these changes as a part of it. And it's going to mean you can debug your test more easily, but it's also going to mean we have a lot of things to explain to people now and they have to go back and fix your tests. And so we try to be very forward-looking with that and include that content early and explain to people like, hey, what is the control flow? You might be hearing about this thing being deprecated. Why does it matter to you? If you have protractor tests, how do I make them work with the new version of Selenium? And so we were able to include that in the book, which is good that it's, it came out now because the next version of Selenium 4 removes the control flow. And so people will need to update to this new API. And we were able to like get in a very timely manner instructions on how to do that and explanation for what's going on. And I'm just glad the book came out before Selenium 4 did. But yeah, absolutely. Going forward, I think when it comes to, as, as someone who works on frameworks or tools, if I want to communicate changing things, it's more effective to maybe do that via blog posts or via podcasts or via conference presentations because books do have a delay to them. It is a very you know, non-Agile process, I think, to get published.
0: I'm also wondering, and this comes out of the episode we did on JavaScript Jabber. We were actually talking about testing the front end And uh, the approach that our guest took was, and that was Josh Justice, uh, who was our guest. But anyway, he works for Big Big Nerd Ranch. He was doing some testing where he was actually testing components with something like Cypress. And I'm wondering at what point, and and I'm curious where everybody's at with this, at what point do you have this breaking point where you go, you know what, this isn't a good fit for Cypress or, or Selenium Web Driver or Test Cafe or something. And it's a better fit for something like Jest or Mocha or something like that. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers. Or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today.
2: Does anyone have any, any specific experiences or that I mean, like switching test frameworks or why you decided to switch? Well, no, frameworks? for me,
0: it's more like if I, so if I'm writing a component, I can... I can load it up in the, the browser or the fake browser or whatever, you know, for right. something, and I can run tests against it. I click it, it does this, I did blah, 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 right? But then you also have other parts that either aren't UI or there's some kind of, there are certain types of components that are less functional, they're less clickable, interactable. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, you know, do, do you take those and, and kind of throw jest at them instead?
2: Yeah, I think so, and I think I think that's the trade off as you as you sort of move down the ladder from like Webdriver to Cypress to Karma and tests that involve or Karma Adjust, or, or tests that involve Angular's renderer to just maybe totally isolated JavaScript only unit tests is is the threshold there for moving Cypress to one layer down would be yeah do I need to there, there's a distinction between white box testing and black box testing right so black box testing is this is a black box. I don't know how it works. All I do is I push buttons and stuff changes. And then white box testing is more. I know internally how this is implemented and I know that I need to make a call to a service here Mm -hmm. or send this kind of event or do this kind of other thing to create the state that I need. And I don't have much experience in in Cypress actually. So that's a a good question is in Cypress, if you need to have a service do something or if you want to trigger some sort of action that isn't triggerable through the UI, how do you do it? And how difficult is that to do? I'm I am mean, not
4: sure I understand the question. I'm thinking about it. So you're saying that you want to trigger an action that's not triggerable in the UI.
2: Yeah. So let's say that part of my page has some sort of event that can fire and show like a free trial banner or some sort of special banner that, you know, when this API call comes in, then this needs to show up on the page. How do I do that in Cypress? How do I do things that don't involve just interacting with the page? You can make XHR calls from
3: Cypress, but if you talk about like I want to trigger a JavaScript, like I want to access a piece of JavaScript code, right? Yeah, I don't. Or, or maybe
0: uh, an interaction from say NgRx or something, right? Where you know you you have some data change and you want to you want to test the the data flow, but you don't necessarily
4: need to test the UI for it. Well, generally, one of those things. I mean, you can access code, but Generally, one of those things, like I've had this in apps where some kind of notification comes in, but usually something in a workflow will cause this to happen. So usually I end up falling back to some kind of UI thing. It becomes a long series of UI interactions. Sometimes those interactions become like 20 steps to be very fair, which can be painful. Uh, it's almost like doing Tetris, right? You know, Make sure the thing lines up, drop it in quick. Oh, damn, I missed it.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. Right.
4: But that's usually, my, been my experience, I've never really had to do directly go call something in any of them, actually. So I, I'm not the best one to answer that. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess...
3: Maybe it's it, a non-problem. You're kind of a, it's kind of a weird mix of a unit test. and a unit test, you're just calling the code, right? Yeah. And then, and then sort of an end-to-end or integration-type test is what you're yeah. talking about, right? Yeah,
2: and I think, I think the point is, like, it's okay to have integration tests that are running in Jest or Karma that are using Angular's testbed that are pulling together entire sections of your page, like maybe even an entire route, if it's easier for you rather than getting there via the UI to, it depends on what you're, what you're trying to test, right? But if you're trying to test like NGRX, I think is a good example.
0: Yeah, I guess my question then is when does it get to the point where it's a unit test of that kind where it makes way more sense to use Jest as opposed to doing some kind of end-to-end stuff.
2: I, I think it, it partially it depends on the scale of your project, right? So, so GCP is a very big project and we rely more on integration tests that run within Karma that mock out more services and mock out more of the framework because that's a team of, of four people working on that. And so they have a contract that they need to worry about and it fits into a much bigger chunk of a whole application.
0: Yeah, I, I think I can see my way to that. So do you, do you folks use a test coverage tool like Istanbul? Or are you more on the, on the side of, hey, look, everything should run. And if we find a bug that's untested, we just make sure we cover it.
2: We do have internal test coverage tools. We have tools that, that tell us when what the incremental coverage is. Like, is this, does this change cause us to have more or less coverage? But I think in general, our test coverage is driven more from, more from bugs and more from, from developers saying just like trying to test as much as they can. And, and sort of being reactive. It's, it's hard because coverage isn't like the full story, right? You can have like total test coverage and not actually be, just because you're covering your code doesn't mean you're covering all the possible states you can enter into, or like all the possible runtime conditions you can run into. Yeah, it depends on, again, what, how much traffic you, you get, like whether you can rely on kind of your user base to surface things to you that you can then turn into regression tests. So
3: I I want to circle back around to something you said really early. You said you weren't a fan of the testing pyramid, right?
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: And so can you explain a little bit more? Like, I would say my understanding of the testing pyramid, I have my own understanding. So what is it about the testing pyramid that you are not a fan of?
2: Well, I just think it ends up being really prescriptive and people end up in kind kind of naming arguments of like, well, is this an integration test or is this a unit test or is like, People get very hot, caught up on like, what category of test is this and trying to figure out where it fits into that into that like USDA food pyramid of what's my daily recommendation of unit tests versus integration versus whatever tests. And I think it, it's not a very helpful abstraction. The way I think about it is tests exist on a spectrum, right? A spectrum that goes all the way from covering one tiny method to covering your entire app, or a spectrum that covers being completely isolated and hermetic to calling into production, and that it's more useful to think of in terms of pragmatically, not do I have too many unit tests or do I have too many integration tests, but is my test suite slow? Does my test suite run quickly? Does it you know, flake out? Does it periodically fail for no reason? And, and when my test suite does fail, like how quickly can I debug that problem? And I think those are the more important concerns, just like the pragmatic effects of how your test suite affects your development. And I feel like the test pyramid is, as typically described is, is kind of an oversimplification and it drives people to create a lot of maybe low value unit tests. I think you don't necessarily need unit tests to verify that your thing instantiates or that your class can be instantiated when you can just have like a single Cypress test that verifies your app works. And that's, that's giving you more value and that you're better off having more unit tests for the part of your code that's trickier or, or there's more complicated logic where you have more kind of potential cases to investigate. Right.
3: So what would you define as a slow test suite versus a
2: fast test suite then? It depends on your experience. But like ideally a test suite is valuable to you if you can run it with every change, right? The point of having tests is to be able to come in and confidently be able to change your code. So if I can come in and refactor something, like have it do the same thing, but just change how the code is organized, then how quickly do I get that feedback from my test suite that I haven't broken anything? And I'd say the limit on that is probably around 20 minutes. Faster is always better. If your test suite runs in like less than a minute, that's awesome. If it takes longer than 20 minutes, if it takes like an hour, that's probably too long.
1: I don't understand. How could you work with it being 20 minutes long if you're like, (laughs) I I literally can't compute that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the the 20 minute test suite for me is, oh, sorry, I was on Twitter. Right. (laughs) Right, when it finishes.
2: Right.
1: Well, because you're talking about being able to run it every time you have a change, but that tw- there's no way twenty minutes equals that, right? Or are we talking about like really large changes and not- really
2: large, not like every time you change a letter, but like every time you put together like a PR or something, okay. Okay. or like a commit, a full on commit? Yeah, you should be able to run your entire test suite in a reasonable amount of time. 20 minutes is like, that does happen. Like people do live like that. And that's why I put out there is kind of like the extreme limit.
1: I was just imagining like working on the UI and like every time I made a change to the I uh, waiting that And that- Right,
2: uh, right. I no, that's like, not- Yeah, that's I'm just right. going to go
1: offline, right? Like forget everything.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I'm typically using a test runner that will run just the relevant tests for the parts of the code I changed. Right. And that's usually based on what file it's in. And right. those will return fast. And then I'm not off on Twitter, you know, looking up tweets about Donald Trump or something. Right.
3: Oh gosh. <laughs> I don't know. Is there much Twitter activity about Donald Trump? I haven't heard of it. I haven't um, heard anything. I don't think so. I think that was pretty it's, it'd pretty be worth if a guy used Twitter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh golly. Yeah, I don't
4: I don't think he does. I don't think he uses it. I think just discovered a really cool feature for test suites. If they're gonna take longer than a certain amount of time, you put a threshold on those it automatically suggests different Twitter feeds that you should be checking out.
1: Oh, dear Lord.
4: oh,
2: oh that's a great feature. <coughs> I would never get anything done.
1: Great as in horrible.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it could just like stick in tweets and the results so you don't get distracted.
1: Oh, yeah, That may be
2: the worst productivity <laughs> idea ever right there. Yeah, like 10 out of 20, like here's a new tweet.
1: Oh, of course,
0: I, I am going to tie into a product, or, you know, I'm going to create a productivity tool now that re- recommends like Plural site courses or something. You're partially done with this one. Go finish it.
1: Yeah. Or we noticed your testing sucks. Go take this one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Very cool. Uh, So yeah. So do you have different recommendations? We've talked a lot about like end to end testing and sort of the the component integration testing. Uh, Do you have recommendations for the uh, unit testing
2: part of things them small, keep them focused, maybe not so much. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I would say keep them small and focused definitely. And don't, obsess about exhaustive unit tests like think about what think about what question this test is asking and what you're going to do if it fails and you know if it's a don't write trivial unit tests don't write tests that just like can't fail or won't fail unless some like some other test would have caught them right just make sure your tests are giving you value also it's uh, really helpful just to make sure your test can fail especially when you're doing async programming just as you know as you're writing a test and if you're writing tests and your tests all pass don't just trust that, like try to introduce a bug and verify that the test you wrote will actually fail and That's will actually catch
1: something. That
2: <laughs> Yeah. That especially that happens in async programming because you might, it's really common to, to not have your test wait for a particular result to come in, right? And just sort of pass, like the default behavior for a test is to pass. So it's helpful to make sure that your expectation was hit and that expectation actually captures something valuable.
0: Well, I don't know. What else to jump on? You did mention that uh, the GCP app is a big Angular app. So do you typically run the code or write your tests in TypeScript? And does it all get compiled by the TypeScript compiler? Or are you doing things more in JavaScript on that end? Or how, how does that all work? So
2: JavaScript is an officially supported language at Google. It is the only language to have gone through the like officially supported language process as of a year ago. So you know, like like ten years ago, they they came up with a policy of this is what needs to happen for a language to be accepted at Google. We already accept Java, Python, C plus plus, and JavaScript because we have to. And they defined a, a policy of steps you could do to get a new language approved. And TypeScript is the only language to have successfully gone through that process.
1: Oh, I thought you said JavaScript was okay. So yeah, TypeScript
2: was yeah yeah yeah. Python so is, so you can um, use
1: TypeScript, is it right?
2: Okay. So we actually just finished a process of um, all of our tests were in JavaScript uh, five months ago. And in the third quarter from August to October, we converted all of our 1600 integration tests from JavaScript to TypeScript. And at the same time, changed that API I was talking about from synchronous to async. So wow. it got off the control flow, made everything asynchronous.
1: How many and, people and- working on that?
2: So there's a couple hundred people working on GCP as a whole. For us, for our team, it was sort of two or three framework engineers who, who developed the migration tooling. And in the end, there were about 20 people who ran our tooling and migrated all their tests and made sure they all work.
1: Okay, um, wow. But
2: yeah, we started with 1500 JavaScript protractor tests in August. And as of October 1st, we had zero JavaScript wow. protractor
3: tests. How long does it take to run fifteen hundred protractor tests?
2: Oh yeah, that's a good about question. about twenty minutes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: I love it. <laughs> uh,
2: if you've seen some of the new stuff from GCP about cloud build, we use a similar system internally to distribute on our tests distributed over several machines in parallel. So ideally, all of the sixteen hundred tests take as long to run as the slowest one of those tests. Realistically, it, it depending on load and depending on time of day it can take up to an hour or maybe uh, an hour or two. Uh, but generally we shoot for 30 to 20 minutes to run the full test suite. Wow. And we've really enjoyed uh, being on TypeScript for both just the editing experience of just having good code completion, of not worrying about typos, you know, being able to catch things sooner. Also this migration that we did where we took a synchronous API and made it async, it was made possible by TypeScript because we were able to create a compiler check in the TypeScript compiler that if you have something that returns a promise, that you do something with that promise, usually that you await it, but that you at least like pass into some other function or something, because otherwise you're making async calls and stuff happens out of order. And getting off the control flow would not have been possible for us without TypeScript. There was, there was actually one more thing I wanted to, to talk about just kind of in the, mm-hmm. in the general aim of like end to end testing. So as I mentioned, we're GCP, we have, we have a couple hundred developers, we have uh, some in Warsaw, some in New York. Some in Seattle. And our typical dogma for telling people how to write end to end tests was that you create page objects. So you create this object that has the selectors that knows how to find the components of your app. And what the Warsaw team found was that was too much friction for them. That was too much overhead that they would have to create this object hierarchy to describe their pages. And then every time they made a new feature, they'd have to go back and like refactor it and change it and change the selectors. So they hacked together the system of finding elements by text. So rather than having to go into like like DevTools and look up the selector for this button or this checkbox, you would just say, look for a button with this text. And maybe you have that text several times on your page. So you would get positional-based selectors to help narrow it down. So you would say under name, look for a button that says add, right? Because maybe you have three add buttons on your page and that distinguishes Mm -hmm. between them. And what this turned into was a very simple API for writing tests. You would say, I expect to see this text. I'm gonna click on something that has this text in it. I'm gonna click on something else. You still have to use CSS selectors, but you spend a lot less time as you're writing integration tests, looking up CSS selectors, because you're able to just use what you see in front of you on the page. We initially were kind of horrified that they were doing this, from like a maintenance perspective but after like talking with them and seeing the the kind of value it gave them they really won us over so craig and i did a that was our a talk at NGConf this year was about um, a few things in protractor one was the control flow and one was this this new approach we call action helpers which is a library for writing integration tests that doesn't depend on selectors it depends on the the text that you see when you look at the page and we were able to write a protractor test on stage for a feature, just do it live. And it was a really great experience because we had TypeScript, we had without the web driver control flow, we had debugging via Chrome DevTools. And then we had this easy API that made it very easy to quickly express. That's awesome, uh, we test. should
1: link to that, that talk yeah. in the show notes.
0: Yeah, we'll get a link in the show notes. Oh, there it is right there. Okay, I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes. All right, let's do pics. Okay.
5: Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section.
0: Alyssa, do you want to start us off with picks?
1: Well, sure. Uh, Last night, uh, I went to a special like ahead-of-time opening of Fantastic Beasts, and it was really, really good. So it comes out this Friday. I know it'll be. Probably in the past, having already came out once this airs, but uh, definitely suggesting it, it was a really fantastic movie, <laughs> uh, okay? But yeah, that is my only pick.
0: <laughs> yeah, my kids are
3: excited to see that one. So, uh, Joe, what are your picks? All right, so, um, I want to pick the new uh Brandon Sanderson book, just came out. I love Brandon Sanderson and love all the stuff so. What's the uh, new I'm book? super excited. to. It's called uh, Skyward, which is really funny because I thought it's also the same name as the software that runs my kids' schools, that keeps their grades in it. don't <laughs> know no, if there's much purpose to the synergy. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so that. I've also been reading Dungeons & Dragons novel called War of the Spider Queen. that has been really interesting as well. So a couple of book picks there. And been playing a board game called Luxor that is, like, amazing. By the time this comes out, it should be available for purchase. We had to pick it up in Denmark uh, because it hasn't been released yet in the U.S. How do you spell it? L-U-X-O-R. And it's basically your Indiana Jones going through a temple, raiding it for uh, artifacts. And it's a really fun game just because um, there is luck and strategy involved but the luck hides a lot behind stuff. So you don't feel like, oh, I can't win or lose. It's just, you know, luck. You don't have to be like super strategic to really feel like you could be competitive. So I'm generally a more strategic thinker than my wife is. And she's won two of the three games that we have played. So um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool game. Really like a... Um, and then finally, since we're talking about testing, I did a talk on Cypress at, uh, Angular connect recently, just, uh, about a week ago. Of course, by the time this comes out, it will be quite a bit, a little bit longer than that. But since we're talking about testing it might be a good thing, go check it out. And I show a fair amount about how to use Cypress, sort of a demo of how to use Cypress and a little bit of warning. I do show, uh protractor in some unfavorable light and some of the stuff that i show you can actually work around in protractor pretty easily but i was kind of uh
2: you making a case yeah. yeah
3: i was making a yeah. case so the, this is how most people work with protractor is to be very you know slow and poor and w- with something like cypress where you can quickly just look at what it is that's uh, wrong i wanted to show that off so anyway i really had fun i i I did the talk only because I really wanted to learn Cypress. So that's why I volunteered to even give the talk, was because I really wanted to learn Cypress, so,
2: which I did. It was really fun. That's, that's the best way to learn something, is to do a talk on it. Yeah, yep. yeah. yeah, for sure.
3: So there we go. Those are, uh, those are my picks.
2: Awesome.
0: I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. I'm going to plug the show again, thedevrev.com. Um, I've got a few other things coming down the pipe some uh, webinars and more content, and I'm going to start putting out some paid content, so uh, keep, keep your eye out for that, um, and then I think I'm also going to be starting out uh, remote conferences again next year, so keep an eye out for that as well. I've been listening a lot lately to the Gary V Audio Experience, which is Gary Vaynerchuk's podcast, and I've, I've really been enjoying it, Um, I kind of started at the beginning and downloaded all of the episodes, which filled up the storage on my phone and crashed it, but it's all better. Now I've listened to enough of them to where I have like a gig of space on my 64 gig phone.
3: Anyway, really enjoying that. And then how many hours of audio is 64 gigs? Just, just curious. Like if you, if you lost, if the internet died and you lived for 40 years before you died, you know, like wasteland zombies, And so there would be no opportunity. Is that the scenario that you were going for is what if I better have all this audio here for 40 years worth? Is that kind of how that played out?
0: Yeah, pretty much. I I have to have all of it.
3: (laughs) You know, it's it's possible to just download (laughs) the stuff. Like the next six or eight episodes, listen to those and then get the others. That, Shut up, Joe. That's the thing. Shut up, Joe. <laughs>
1: I love that. I was just assuming he was going through that much content. I was like, rocket
0: man. <laughs> yeah. So one gig. It depends on the compression rate on the MP3s. It's it's a few hours, I think.
3: Like, is the audio only in like wave format or?
0: <laughs> All right. Anyway, I'm getting off. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so yeah. So I've I've been uh, I've been enjoying the podcasts. And I I got Skyward on my wish list in Audible. So when I get some credits, I'll probably buy
2: it. We got everyone's picks except Mike's. Mike, do you have some picks for us? Uh, Yeah. So I've been reading uh, Scale by Jeffrey West. Uh, So Jeffrey West is a uh, physicist who decided to work in biology, which is typically it's not a story that goes well. It's like the physicist tries to reduce everything to uh, to physics, but uh, it's it's a really interesting book. He, He explores a lot of interesting questions about how do biological systems change as they scale? And what relates, say, the lifespan or the metabolism as an organism. So, like, how do, all, how do all mammals relate to each other as they scale from a mouse to a whale? And how does the whale's lifespan uh, vary with its body size compared to, say, a mouse? Um, oh, interesting. Really interesting. And then he takes that idea and applies it to other complex systems, including cities and companies. Um, it's a really interesting read. And for board games, I like uh, Captain Sonar. I don't know how many, how many people are familiar with it. That's a fun game. Yeah, it's a, yep, it's a good game. real-time cooperative slash competitive uh, board game. I don't think there's anything else quite like it.
3: Yeah, that's the one where different people... Space Cadets Dice Tools to is very similar.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: Sync the sub, the other sub, right?
2: Yeah, you're like on two teams. Yeah. So you've got your four people versus other four people. And you're, you're trying to communicate with your team and also try not to be too loud so that the other team hears you. And you're like running the sub, like searching for each other. Yeah. yeah.
3: What was the name of that other game, Joe? Space Cadets Dice Duels. Uh, it's a little bit older than Captain Sonar, but it's kind of the same concept, except say Star Trek instead of uh, submarines. You're on a ship and you can have up to four people and each person has a different job. So one person decides where you go. One person fires the weapons. One person handles the engineering. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember the fourth role. You can play with fewer than four people per team, but, to, but it plays best with four people on each team. And that's a really fun one. But very similar to Captain Sonar. That sounds cool. And then I just saw in Denmark while I was there a new board game, of Sonar Family, which plays with just f- four people, two on each team, which I think you can play Captain Sonar with just two on each team, but this one maxes out at four people, two on each team. So,
0: Yeah, I've played Captain Sonar with eight and with six. And somebody has to double up. Yeah. <laughs> and then it gets real interesting. Yeah. yeah. I
3: think this one was more specifically for like playing with your kids. So it wasn't as hard.
0: Right. Sounds good. Well, Mike, if people want to find you online, is there a place where you blog or tweet or put your code?
2: Uh, there isn't. I'm on uh, Twitter at HeathKit, H E A T H K I T. And I'm also that on GitHub and pretty much every other social platform.
0: Good deal. Well, thanks again for coming. Uh, We'll go ahead and wrap this one up, and we will catch everybody next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.